¿Bien? Sí. Buenos días. Los amo. Estoy confundiendo a los gringos un poquito. Just kidding. My name is a Christian. How awkward would it be if I just start preaching in Spanish? You should have seen your faces. It was hilarious. Uh, anyways, my name is Christian Moscoso, and I, too, am one of the pastor elders here at Trinity. And it is our joy uh, to be here this morning. It is my joy to bring the word. But before I do that, I want to say two things. First, I want to say, Caleb, Liliana, we were going to miss you. Uh, we are so thankful for the model of humility that you guys have shown as you pursue Uh, mission, what you guys believe to be the calling of the Lord, and we are so happy as a church to send you guys as you take a step towards missions. We cannot wait to see what the Lord will do in your life, and we are so proud that you guys call this church home. And so be blessed as you guys go. We will miss you, and I wanted you guys to hear that again. Uh, secondly, as we are saying uh, goodbye to them, we also do have some good news today for the first time. We have Mr. and Mrs. Kylie Bowman. And so they got married a couple of weeks ago. And uh, guys, we love you. We're so proud of you. All right. Now we'll get started. So Titus, if you are here for the first time, we have been going, as a church, we go through books of the Bible systematically. We call that expository preaching. And so we have been going through the letter of Titus that was written by Paul. And so... Um, in the last few weeks, we have been looking at it in detail, but you may remember that the first week, uh, Tim described the book of Titus as an instruction manual on how to do church. You know, on his opening, uh, uh, Paul, in his opening of, of the letter, Paul says this, he describes himself as a servant of God for the sake of, fa of the faith of the God's elect and their knowledge of the truth according to godliness in hope of eternal life. So this is first, uh, verse one, and I want you, if you have a pen, I want you to underline three words. I want you to underline the word knowledge, the word godliness, and the word hope. I want to highlight these three words because I think they help us understand the rest of the book of Titus. First, knowledge, because Paul has been banging on the drum of sound doctrine for a while now. He has told Titus to appoint elders that would hold firm to the word. Because you see, sound doctrine, the word of God, a good interpretation and application of God's word is not an add-on to the Christian life. It's not the thing that mature Christians do. Sound doctrine is foundational to our faith. Secondly, I want you to look at the word godliness. Because Paul says in verse 1, he says again, um, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul says that it accords, it accords I'm sorry, to godliness. The reason uh, why sound doctrine is so important is that what we know determines how we live. So doctrine is a lot more than just an intellectual exercise. Sound doctrine renews our minds, it shapes our hearts, and then it transforms our lives And it anchors our hope. Which leads me to my third word, which is hope. Because Paul here reminds us that sound doctrine not only changes the way that we live, but it changes where we set our hopes. And that is the promise of God. The promises that we see in his word for you and for me. Church, that is why the preaching of the word is so important and central to what we do when we gather as saints. Because from this flows everything else. 
from an understanding, from a knowledge of the word, flows everything else in the Christian life. Then we moved into chapter 2. In the last two weeks, Tim has been going through chapter 2, and he covered verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. And there we saw how Paul tells Titus how to disciple different segments of the church. You may remember two weeks ago, uh, Tim talked about how Titus is to disciple older men in the church. The last week we talked about how to disciple younger, I mean older women. Today we will see how younger women and younger men are to be discipled in the body. You see, the gospel is transformational in every stage of life. And the way that we disciple older men and older women differs from the way we disciple younger men and younger women, which is also different to the way that we would disciple our children. I often hear people say that the Bible never talks about children's ministry or youth ministry. But the reality is that the Bible teaches us that we have to disciple believers in a way that is appropriate to their age and their situation, which is why here we have uh, children's ministry and uh, youth ministry. All that to say that no matter your age, no matter what season or stage of life you're in, we need you. As a church, we are incomplete without you. If you just come and participate by sitting and consuming, we are, we are, you are robbing us of the blessing of having you as part of the life of the church. We need you. Which is why it was so awesome to see two weeks ago the older men stand in front of us and then last week we saw the older women in front of us. It was a beautiful reminder of how much we need them. Yes. Which is why a huge pet peeve of mine is when churches market themselves as not your grandmother's church. Can I tell you how much that bothers me? Because honestly, if there's no room for grandma at church, we're doing church wrong. The gospel is multi-generational yes. by design. We need you. No matter where you are in life, we need you. Today, we will look at what Paul tells Titus uh, about how he should disciple younger men and younger women. So would you please read with me the first uh, four, ver- actually five verses of, um, of Titus 2. I'm going to start with verse 1 again so that we see and understand the context. Again, it says, But as for you, that being Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your word. We pray, Father, that you would speak through your word to our hearts, that you would um, disciple our hearts, shape our hearts. Father, reorder our loves as we look at your word, Father, because we want to live in a way that gives you glory. Father, we pray. I pray, Father, there's anything that I say that does not align to the truth of Scripture. Anything that comes from my own understanding or my own imagination, I pray, Father, that it would fall down and be forgotten. Help us, Father, be people of the Word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, before we get into this passage, I think it's worth mentioning that in the last few weeks or months, there have been a couple of documentaries that came out 
on different streaming services that have caused a bit of a splash. You may be familiar with them. One of them is called The Secrets of Hilson. And the other one is Shiny Happy People, which uh, I loved how Tim baptized it last week. Happy Slappy People. <laughs> it's a little bit more uh, accurate, but hey. Anyways, these two documentaries have put some of the failures of the church at the front and center of the cultural conversation. Right? We see all the failures so clearly in those documentaries. I got to tell you, I watched them both. And both of them broke my heart. Now, I'm not recommending you go watch them. But let me tell you, watching them in the context of the book of Titus only reinforced my belief of how much we need this book, this little letter in the life of the church. And I, by that, when I say that, I don't say it in judgment to the rest of the church. But I'm saying here at Trinity, we need Titus. We need to live according to the word of God in a way that would give him glory and not bring, um, and, and, and not, yeah, repro- yeah, not bring reproach to his church. Now I say this, I'm talking about these, these documentaries, because I noticed how both of these groups of people that are portrayed in these documentaries, even if they came from complete opposite extremes of the theological spectrum, they both used biblical language that they co-opted, twisted, and misused. In both cases, this language was used to hurt and abuse people. In today's passage, though, we will see some of that language. In today's passage, we will see biblical language that is good language. But as Tim mentioned last week, while we will never apologize for biblical language and the truth... I do want to recognize this morning that some of you might come from backgrounds where this language was co-opted, where this language was twisted and used to bully you. And I want to say that up front because we recognize that there have been people that have abused this language and used it for for their selfish benefit. I want you to know that the elders of Trinity Community Church would recognize that oppression and abuse of authority has happened in the church at different times and in different places and in many different ways. And we would strongly condemn that. We would condemn that type of behavior because we believe it to be contrary to God's word and to his design. I say this not so much as a trigger warning, but as an invitation to lean in to hear what the word of God has to say about God's beautiful design for men and women. I want you to see verses four and five. To tell you the truth, coming in, coming up here and, and preaching verses four and five would not be on my top verses to choose from scripture. Someone texted me yesterday and said, good luck, buddy, I'm praying for you. <laughs> but <laughs> this portion Titus has been speaking to older women, right? That's the context that this verse comes in. And he is now encouraging older women to train younger women. Tim touched on this last week, where he said that older women are to teach what is good, what is according to sound doctrine. So ma'am, can I talk to you for a second? Ma'am, the time that you are spending digging in the word today will not only transform your life, but the lives of those around you. Not only your children, but younger women that the Lord has put in your life. So please don't stop digging into the word. 
We need you. Now, I find it interesting because Paul is telling Titus how to disciple older men, how to disciple older women, but then he says this. He said that the personal discipleship of younger women should be done a little differently. It says that it should be done not by him, but by mature women in the congregation. Now, let me clarify. This doesn't mean that Titus doesn't get to disciple women. But he's saying that the one-on-one personal discipleship for younger women is better for older women to do. Older women are better positioned to do this type of discipleship because, you know, I believe this is wise because I believe younger women will be more inclined to receive biblical truths or the biblical truths that Paul is talking about right here from older women than from a young man like Titus. Older women are better positioned to disciple younger women one-on-one because they have walked the path that younger women are called to walk. They will be familiar with the difficulties. They will be familiar with the fears. They'll be familiar with the temptations that younger women will struggle with as they hear the word of God, which is at times offensive to our sensibilities. Now, once again, I want to make sure that you're hearing this. This doesn't mean that younger women don't have a pastor. This doesn't mean that young women cannot learn from male leaders in the church. Younger women can and should learn from them, but Paul recognizes that older women are in positions that are more conducive for this type of personal discipleship. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says this. He says, when Paul urges older women to train the young women, the key key is encouragement. And while women may feel manipulated and oppressed when informed of their duties by men, when they are led to a godly lifestyle by carrying older women, they feel empowered. Do you see this? If I'm the one that tells you, hey, submit to your husband, you might be tempted to think, well, that is the patriarchy. But whenever you're having breakfast with Kim or coffee with Karen, and you see how they joyfully live this out, you might be a lot more inclined to see it true in your life. I'm happy to tell you what the Bible has to say about a godly life. But it might be easier for you to learn it from older women in the church. Women who model this with joy. Now, what Paul is telling Titus is that older women should train younger women in a few ways that can be broken down into two main buckets. And so I want to do that into two main, I want to break it down into two buckets this morning. First, younger women need to be trained um, or discipled to have a heart for the home and a heart for godliness. And that's how I want to break it down today. This obviously implies that the women that he's talking about are married. But if you are a single lady here this morning, I want to invite you not to check out. This text does not exclude you. But we'll get back to that in a moment. So the first thing, the first area, if you will, that Paul, that, that Paul tells Titus that older women should be training younger women is in the area of having a heart for the home. According to Paul, younger women need to be discipled in their life at home. About this, he says three things. Three things that can be very controversial nowadays. Number one, he says that they ought to love their husbands, working at home, and to be submissive to their own husbands. The question is, what do these things mean? The first thing is to love their husbands and children. As Christians, we know that love is the mark of every Christian and the duty of every single one of us. Christian love is always a reflection of God's love for us. 
And so as we are filled by the love of God, it overflows into love and service to those around us. So Paul is saying that younger women should love their husbands and their children. Now I want you to notice the order Paul uses here because I don't think it's accidental. Paul says, love your husband and love your children. And I think much damage has been done when this order is reversed. In the last few years, I have personally seen many Christian marriages that have been destroyed, at least in part by this phenomenon of reversing the order. There are cases when women devote themselves to their children so much and so exclusively that they unintentionally relegate their husbands to a secondary role. Then, The husbands are at times happy to let their wives just do everything and become just another child to be cared for. The problem with this is that when the children grow up, when the children stop depending on mom, it throws mom off for a loop. It confuses them. This happens when being a mom becomes your identity rather than just part of your calling. And this can be earth-shattering. Younger ladies... Ma'am, ladies in the room, I don't know how to say it. (laughs) Loving your children is good and appropriate, and we want you to do that. But what Paul is calling young women here is to order their loves. Please love your children, serve them well, but make sure that you don't do it to the exclusion of your husband. Men, can I talk to you for a second? Let us as men strive to be the husbands, the kind of husbands that are easy to love. Let us strive to be the type of man that our wives won't see as just another child to be cared for. Let us be men of the word. Let us be about the home as well. Now, I want to say though, the biblical love is not transactional. Now you might be thinking, How can the Bible instruct us to love? Isn't love a feeling? Isn't isn't love something that you fall in or out of? Or is love something that we can muster from within ourselves? No. When Paul calls us to love, it's a call to imitate Christ's love for us. His non-transactional love for his children. Paul famously tells us elsewhere that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You see, biblical love is not transactional. Biblical love is given even when it is undeserved. Biblical love overflows in the form of affection, of care, and service towards those, towards those, who love, uh, toward those that we love. And as Tim mentioned when he was looking at my notes, he said that the moment our love for each other is rooted on when or if our spouse deserves it or has earned it, that is the moment when we have lost our way and we have lost sight on the gospel. Younger ladies, the first call of Paul to you here is love your family. Love your family. This is a, a call to be like Christ. To love in a way that is not transactional. You are not to love your husbands when they deserve it. You are not to love your children when they deserve it. But let me tell you, if that's the case, I'm in trouble. You can talk to my wife later. (laughs) But here's the second call. 
Love your husband, love your children. The second call is working at home. Oh boy. This passage is telling older women to teach younger women in relation to the home, and it's saying that younger women should be working at home. What does this mean? Does this mean that women should not work outside the house? Nope. The context of this verse, the context this verse was written in, does not allow for that interpretation. Can women just work at home if they want to? Absolutely they can. But does the Bible prohibit them to be in the workplace? No. Not only do we see strong women in the New Testament, women like Lydia, who was a seller of purple, or Priscilla, who was a tent maker along with her husband, and they built tents to support the ministry of the church. We also have women like Phoebe, who was a patron of Paul and other church leaders, which means that she had the financial stability and independence to support Paul and other leaders in their ministry. These were all women that Paul valued and loved personally. These are women that Paul worked along with. So Paul is not saying that women should only work at home, that they should not be outside. That's the, I don't think the context allows that. But on top of that, in Proverbs 31, as the Bible describes a woman that fears the Lord, it describes her as a woman who cares for her family and for her community. She is shrewd. She is a business owner. And she has the financial capability to even acquire good land. This is a woman that is actually working. So this idea that a woman is prohibited, prohibited from working outside the church is actually extra biblical. What Paul is saying here, though, is that even as women should and could use their gifting for the benefit of the community, they don't do it at the cost of their family. In the original language, this could be translated as saying, not working at the home, but to be busy at home. So a godly woman arranges and orients her life in such a way that prioritizes life at home. Now, even though life at home is not easy, it should not be seen as a burden or a task to be despised. A family is a blessing and a calling, not only for mom, but for dad too. Dear sisters, it is not wrong for you to desire a career or to want to use your gifting outside the home. Paul is warning us against the moments when these desires cause you to neglect the home or to resent your family. So this instruction is not, a, is not, much or not so much about the location of a woman's work, but the heart behind it, a heart that is for the home. And this then leads me to the third instruction in this bucket, if you will. And this is a fun one. To be submissive to their own husbands. All right. This passage teaches that a wife should be submissive to their own husband. Now, it is important that we remember that this instruction was not written in a vacuum. This instruction was not written by itself. It's written in context. The overall context of Scripture will help us understand and interpret what that actually means. And so in order to do this, it is helpful to remember that this letter was written by Paul... Because he talks about this very topic somewhere else. He does that in Ephesians 5. So would you jump with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And 
and there. Or, well, the reason I want to read this passage is because I want you to see that the concept of submission is always in the context of sacrificial love. And that sacrificial love and biblical submission are complementary. When one is missing, the other one is inevitably distorted. So would you read with me verses 25 to 28? Or would you follow with me? It says this. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blemish, and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love, uh, I'm sorry, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I think it's important that we talk about verse 23. Let me read it for you again. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. I think it's important that we talk about it because if we read it with our 2023 cultural lenses, we will hate this passage. Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife. And that is what we call the concept of headship. In his sovereign knowledge, and for reasons we might never understand, it pleased God to give complementary roles to husbands and wives. By the way, I do want you to notice that Paul tells us that a wife's submission is not to all men, but to her own husband. Unfortunately, this has been twisted, and some would say it differently, so I just want to make sure I clarify that. But in the case of the man, he is called to be the head of the home. If we're honest, I think this rubs us the wrong way, and it can offend our modern sensibilities. But I want you to look at verse 23 with me again, because look at what it says. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Caesar is the head of Rome. Is that what it says? No. It says... Um, it says uh, that, that um, the husband is the head of the, of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. As Christ, not Caesar. Notice that the concept of headship is compared to Christ and to the way that he relates to the church, not compared to an emperor or an authoritarian ruler. So as you see this submission to Christ, let me ask you, is this a picture of abuse? Is Christ abusive with his bride? Does he oppress her? Does he use her? Does Jesus bully his wife into submission? Absolutely not. The way Christ relates to us is precisely through sacrificial love. He loved us so that he gave his life for us. He is gentle and lowly, the word says. When Isaiah describes the Christ, he says that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So let me ask you again, is this the picture of abuse that comes to mind when we think of the word submission? Not at all. Dear sister, when the Bible calls you to submission, it is never a call to abuse or oppression. It is a call to loving unity with the one that loves you. One that loves you sacrificially. 
In their commentary of this passage, Ken Hughes and Brian Chappell say this. They say, the Greek term for uh, submit does not mean that a wife is to suppress her intelligence, talents, and gifts in the home. Rather, she should fully express these gifts in the purpose of supporting her husband in the spiritual leadership of the home. Now, it would be foolish for us to assume that this is how it always goes. I'm a pastor. I counsel people. Let me tell you, this is not how it always goes. In the end, marriage doesn't always go smoothly. We live in a broken world, and ultimately, we are all married to sinners. And as I mentioned earlier, there are some who will use this type of language. They will twist it, they will abuse it, and they will use it for selfish reasons. But that's not the gospel. That's not what Paul is calling for. Like I said, submission and sacrificial love are complementary. And when one is missing, the other one is distorted. When submission is expected without the context of sacrificial love, the submission is used for manipulation, for oppression, and abuse. And dear sister, let me tell you, this loud and clear, that is not what the Bible is calling you to. The Bible is not calling you to uh, allow abuse, to allow manipulation. That is not what the Bible is calling you to. Brother, dear brothers, the vision of marriage that the Bible gives us is one of love and unity. In that love, there's no barking orders to your wife. There's no ruling with an iron fist. Christ's love for us is gentle and kind and patient and abounding in steadfast love. The biblical vision of marriage is marked by sacrificial love that communicates one that leads gently. It's not a one-way conversation. This past Wednesday, I think it was 62 of us that went kayaking together. Thank you, Austin. Really appreciate it. We loved it. So let's get... <clears throat> and this, um, we, we had a lot of fun. And to be honest, this illustration would work a lot better if my wife, if my wife had been in my kayak, but she couldn't make it that day. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to, but I did have the joy of kayaking with Alice Williams. Now, I still think this is a good illustration, so bear with me for a moment. Because <clears throat> before we went on the water, the guides told us that we should paddle together and in sync, right? So if you've ever been kayaking, you know, you, you, you gotta, you gotta, one of you uh, sets the pace, and you kayak together and in sync. Inevitably, there are moments when you get out of sync, and if you do that long enough, you will just go in circles, right? Or you will get mad at each other. Something else they told us before we got in the water was that the person in the back, the heavier person, so this guy, <clears throat> was responsible for steering to give direction of where you're going, right? So for those moments, when you get out of sync, the person in the back is to gently put his paddle and redirect the course. In practice, that's just what tandem kayaking looks like, right? Two people in sync. We get out of sync. One of us will redirect. Okay? And so it is with the biblical vision for marriage. What Paul is calling us to when he talks about biblical submission and sacrificial love is this. It's not one of imposing, of oppressing or suppressing, manipulating or bullying it is one where both husband and wife paddle in unity towards the same goal, Amen. 
And when they're, um, and, and then at the times when things get out of sync, a wife will defer to the husband to redirect. That's what this is calling us to. This is precisely why community is so important for us as believers. You know, every few, every few weeks, Megan and I get to grab lunch with Tim and Kim. And I don't think they do this intentionally, but we learn so much from them. We learn from them this model. Um, you know, we, we learn from them how they model this biblical vision of marriage. This topic that I'm talking about today requires more than a sermon for you to see the full picture of what it actually looks like. And for that, I want to invite you, please be in community with other believers. Please hang out with older folks. Now, as I say this, I am well aware that not everyone here is in the context of a healthy marriage. Some of you are too young to be married. Some of you would like to be married by now, but for some reason God hasn't allowed that to happen yet. But can I remind you once again that this letter, that this letter was written by Paul, a single man? And though he recognizes marriage to be a blessing, he would know firsthand that it is not always the purpose of God for his children. So don't buy the lie that marriage is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. God's glory is. And so even if at times it can be painful, if God hasn't allowed you to be married yet, can I remind you that he hasn't robbed you of anything? If singleness is where he has you today, it is for his glory. And as hard as it may be for us to understand, it is also for your joy. I'm also aware that, those, that there are those of you who unfortunately married immature men that didn't care about sacrificial love. I know that some of you have been hurt by selfish, immature men. Maybe you married a man that used you, that bullied you, that abused you. And to you, I'd like to share <clears throat> a quote I stole from Matt Chandler where he says, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. Don't lose heart. If you have been used, abused, mistreated by a man, I want you to hear this. Where, ma where a man left a vacuum, God will fill the gaps. He will enter that space and he is going to watch over you and care for you with love. Where a man hurt you, God will heal you. Sister, you are not alone. You are not alone. So that is the first bucket of instructions for younger women. The second one is much shorter. <laughs> the second bucket applies to both men and women, actually, and that is a heart of purity. To the women, he says that they should be pure and self-controlled. And it's rather fascinating that this is the only instruction that Paul gives to both older men and women and younger men and women. It's to be self-controlled. I think as a society, we are in a crisis of self-control. Precisely because our society sells the idea that happiness and freedom is found when we give in to our every want, our every desire, and our every whim. A lack of self-control takes many shapes, and it tempts us all differently in different stages of life. For example, when you're a kid, you like self-control. Uh, your lack of self-control might be fleshed out in a video game addiction or a sugar addiction. 
But when you're in high school or college, the lack of self-control may be fleshed out in the area of sexual immorality, for example. Or later in life, lack of self-control may have to do with a shopping addiction or with eating habits or with gossip. We all struggle with self-control at different points and in different ways. Tim Keller once said, self-control is the ability to do the important thing rather than the urgent thing. And I want to add to that a little bit. Self-control is the ability to do the right thing, not the thing that you want in that moment. And this leads me to my second point, which once again will be much shorter. But Paul is not only addressing the younger women, he is also addressing the younger men. My second point then is that God, God calls young men to a life of godliness too. And for that, I want you to <clears throat> follow with me as I read verses 6 through 8. It says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So self-control is again here. Show, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. A moment ago, we saw Paul saying that younger ladies, oh, two younger ladies, that they should submit to their own husbands. Now, he will be telling Titus to train younger men to be the kind of man that is worth following. There is a big difference between the biblical vision of a godly man and the kind of guy that our culture celebrates. I think Matt Chandler, again, is right when he says that the difference between men and boys is that boys are takers and men are givers. For a boy, the world is all about him. He cares about what he can get and know what he can give. A little boy might say, that's mine, mine, mine. What about me? Me, 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 me. The difference between between boys and men is that boys are takers while men are givers, sacrificial givers. Chandler says, Godly men are self-sacrificing for the good of the wife, for the good of the child, for the good of the church, for the good of the community. Self-sacrificing love is a mark of biblical masculinity. Where men are takers and try to operate in headship, they tend to be oppressive. They tend to rule with an iron fist. They tend to be this false bravado, insecure masculinity that reeks of the stench of death. Men aren't takers. Boys are. Men are givers. Self-sacrificing love marks the headship of men. So young men, let me ask you this morning, are you a boy or a man? Are you a giver or a taker. Because when you become a taker, your self-control or lack of it will affect those around you. So Paul then instructs young men to be self-controlled. Church, so much damage has been done by boys who lack self-control. Men who can't control their temper, their words, their passions... Men have hurt many through their lack of self-control. So men, let us fight for self-control. And remember, self-control is not something that you can just muster from within. Self-control is a gift of the Spirit that can be cultivated by spending time in the Word and in prayer and in Christian community. So let me ask you this morning, are you cultivating self-control? Or do you give in to every want and whim? Now, can I be honest with you? 
I'm not setting myself as the example here. The struggle that I have in my heart every time I drive past a McDonald's is unreal. And so I'm not saying I'm the example of self-control here. But the Bible does call us to self-control. And we need to be actively fighting for it. And pursuing it. And remembering that it is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And one that, let me tell you, if you pray to God for self-control, he will always answer that question, that prayer saying, yes. Because he has already provided for you for it. Dear brothers, becoming a man does not come effortlessly. Becoming a biblical man doesn't just come with purity. Being a godly man takes intentionality and effort. So let us strive to be men who are marked by sacrificial love, by mutual submission, by men who are willing to die to ourselves for the sake of the glory of God and for the good of our families. Church, in a world that celebrates and rewards young boys in the short, short term, let us be godly men who seek a life not of self-glory, but the glory of God and the good of our families. Because of time, I'm going to have to uh, come to a close here. But as I do that, I want to address a couple of things that I think are so important. First, everything that we just talked about applies to all adults. <clears throat> I, want, I, I know that because Paul breaks it down into the categories of older men, older women, younger men, younger women, you might be tempted to say, well, this doesn't apply to me. But you know what? I'm at this weird age where at times I'm the youngest person in the room. And at other times... I'm the oldest person in the room. So what that does is that when I meet with the elders, for example, I'm often the, in the role of the younger man that, that needs to be willing to learn from older men. But there are times, there are times when I'm the older man, say when I meet with Andy or Johnny or Mason, and, and I'm the older guy. And here, Titus, uh, oh, Paul is calling Titus to remind us that whenever we meet with them, that we are a model. Now, whether you're going to be a, God, a model for, for godliness or for the world, that depends on you. Now, I know you too will find yourself in situations where you will be learning from those older than you, but also in situations where you will be the older person and the model, whether you see it that way or not. And so... Keep that in mind, that this applies to you. Lastly, <clears throat> and this is very important, so please, if you haven't paid attention, pay attention now. <clears throat> because I want you to know that this passage is very heavy with instruction and with expectations. But if you walk away from here this morning with a to-do list, we're in trouble. The things that we talked about this morning are not easy to do, or if we're honest, they're not even easy to want to do. But the beauty of the gospel is that God only calls us to do what he has already provided for. None of the things that we discussed this morning can be done on your own strength. You can't do it on your own. And so for that reason, I want us to jump to verses 11 and 14, which we'll be addressing later, but I want you to see this. That the only way that you can do these things is by the grace of God. <clears throat> Verse 11 says this, 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." So you see, you can become all these things. Not on your own strength, but by the grace of God. All these things that we talked about, you can become by beholding and delighting in the finished work of Christ. You can be godly. Peter tells us that, that all things have been provided You can be godly. You can be self-controlled. You can be loving. You can be submissive, etc. Because Christ gave himself for us, not only to redeem us, but to purify us, to sanctify us, to make us like himself. And this brings us back to where we started. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. But it brings us to where we started this morning. Because it is only through the knowledge of Christ that we can be godly, while at the same time resting, not not on our ability, but resting in the hope of the gospel. And the fact that Jesus at the cross said, it is finished. It is finished. As you walk away from from here this morning, I pray that you would not walk away with a to-do list that you would not walk away burdened, but that you would walk away hopeful and encouraged by what Christ has already provided for you, for your marriage, and for your family. Amen. Would you worship with us this morning?